Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 3rd, 2016 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening was high anxiety. Audience, open up your hands. And let's welcome Todd Andrews to the stage. So hi, going first is always the best position to be in, I think. So in the early 1980s, I was in college and one of my classmates was John F. Kennedy Jr. But this story is not about him. <laughs> he was a friend of mine, but he had a very wide circle of friends, so don't be fooled by that. But one of the things about John F. Kennedy Jr. is when you were with him in a room, in a party, you felt like you were at the center of the universe. And if you were a young man and you were interested in girls, you were really at the center of the universe. You really felt it. So then fast forward to the 1992 Democratic Convention in Madison Square Garden in New York City. And I was working in politics at that time. And I was on loan to the Democratic National Committee to work at the convention. And my job was to work in what they called the TV room. And this is long before the internet and all that kind of stuff. And uh, my job was to get three televisions hooked up in this room uh, so that you could watch the three major networks, which at that time was a very important thing to do. And so it took me two days to convince the union guys at the loading dock to take the TVs up to the suite. <laughs> to hook it up, and then after that I was done. You would hang out in the suite and you would run around, and if you've ever been in Madison Square Garden, it's like a big uh, cake, and it's uh, the floor is in the center and the suites are all around and you look down and see what's happening. And if you ever have a chance to go to a convention, you should go because it's a lot of fun. It's, it's really a, an opportunity not to be missed. So I'm standing out in the hallway outside the television suite, uh, checking people coming in. And uh, you want journalists to come in. And my friend, John F. Kennedy Jr., walks by. And he says, hey, how you doing? I said, yeah, I'm working here for the DNC. He goes, come on with me to this other suite. It's a good suite. It's food. And there's an open bar. And you come with me and everything like that. I said, yeah, with John F. Kennedy Jr., I get that vibe from uh, college again. So I, I immediately take off, we take off, we go to the suite, we get, the guy opens the door, he's got a suit, and he sees John F. Kennedy Jr., you go right in, you never were stopped. And you go in, and there's a bar, and food, and a TV, and you're looking out, and there are celebrities there, there's, uh, there's Robert Downey Jr., 1992 Robert Downey Jr. So, uh, there's uh, Bill Bradley Jr., there's, uh, I, I remember vaguely David Hasselhoff, but that might just be a memory of something else. And, uh, and then there's uh, Esther Roll, who played the role of Florida in the Norman Lear show, Good Times, okay? So we're there, and I'm having it, and there's a TV set, and I'm standing really close to it, watching what's happened on the floor, because you don't want to look out the window. You want to see it on TV. And all of a sudden, I hear uh, an older, a voice of an older woman say, excuse me, could you please move, young man? And I go, okay, 
I move a little bit to the right, and I keep watching TV, and then more persistently, excuse me, I can't see, young man. Okay, be respectful. And then finally, a third time, she says, I really cannot see, young man. And I go, you know, does this lady know I'm here with John F. Kennedy Jr.? <laughs> so I spin around to give her my fiercest I'm with John F. Kennedy Jr. look. <laughs> and staring me right in the face, sitting down seated, is Rosa Parks. <laughs> and you know it's Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks did not have a makeover in the 90s. She was not, that's Rosa Parks. You see her, she's got a shawl over, and she's looking right at you. And she's really pissed at me, Rosa Parks. And then finally, Esther Roll sidles up to me, and she says, Miss Parks can't see. Could you move aside? I go, oh my god, now I'm the bad guy in a Norman Lear show. Because I'm mean to Rosa Parks. And Esther Roll is mad at me. And then finally, my friend, John F. Kennedy, comes up to me and says, dude, that's Rosa Parks. <laughs> and I said, I know. I said, maybe, I, I think I'll get out of here. <laughs> so I signed away a good friend that he was. He left with me, even though it was a very sweet setup. So to this day, I always think that in order to avoid high anxiety, never let good manners let you down. Always focus on that. There's no situation where it's not appropriate, and I'm so glad they didn't put Rosa Parks' picture on the $20 bill because every time I see her or think about her or see her statue, I have high anxiety. Thank you. Next up, we have Lisa Brown. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you guys. Okay, so I'm a teacher over here at Nosset Regional High School, and I was born and raised in Wellfleet. And I live in a really beautiful place. It's this house that my dad built. And my parents died a long time ago. And my wife, Deirdre, and I moved into the main house from the barn. So we had a lot, a shit ton of, of work to do in this very old house. And we had to do a lot of painting and a lot of changing the floors and the windows and all this other stuff. So. We call the floor guys. I think I can even remember three, six, two, nine, eight, seven. I, I think I, but it's like National Floors Direct or something. And they come to put in a laminate wood floor. And it's over the weekend, and we have been slamming, doing painting and fixing all the stuff up. And Deirdre does the minute stuff. She does all the detail work. We have 29 colors in our house. And, you know, and I do the big stuff, like pay the bills for all this stuff and everything. <laughs> Whatever, it's all good. We, we've been together for a long time, but, you know, I've paid her to stay with me, so it's worked out. <laughs> so, but, but, but here's the thing. So she's ready to get the 29th color and to get it fixed and mixed and all this stuff. So she goes down to Mid-Cape, and the floor guys come. And they're setting up all their stuff, and they've got this big chop saw on the, on the, on the porch and a big rip saw. And we're living down in the barn, and very slowly, I'm taking boxes, and I'm moving them up to the main house, because this is what we're doing, going from one place to the other. So 
The guys are starting, Deirdre's off doing her thing, and I hear, and I hear the saw going, and it stops, and then I hear bang, 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 and I'm doing stuff, and I hear the saw go, and all of a sudden, I hear a blood-curdling scream. And I'm like, oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> so I know exactly what happened. The two guys that came, they both speak Portuguese. Nobody speaks English. They're coming from off Cape, New Bedford or something. I knew exactly what happened. The guy, the guy who was helping the main guy was only in his like early 20s or something, and I knew. So I just grabbed the phone right there at the barn, called 911 and said, some guy just chopped something off, and I'm not sure what, <laughs> but we're gonna go check it out right now. And so we bolted across the, bolted across the lawn. Now, meanwhile, my dog is ahead of me, and she's running up. We get to the porch, and there, the saw is still going. There's a blood thing that goes wow right across the, the porch. She stops and starts licking. <laughs> and so I run into the house, and this guy is screaming, and he's writhing on the floor, and I'm like, fuck, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. So there's this pile of napkins over here, and I'm looking, and the guy's over here. And nobody speaks English, and I don't speak any Portuguese except for, like, where's beer or where's the bathroom or something. And I grab these napkins, and I come over, and the guy is rolling on the floor, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, it's his hand or something. And I don't even really look, but I sort of look. I sort of look. And he's missing two fingers, where it looks like two fingers or something. Something is bloody stumping happening. So I, I, I take the napkin, and I put it on his hand, and I'm, I'm holding him, and I sit there in his blood, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm cradling him, and I'm saying, tudo bem, tudo bem, which means, it's cool, man, it's cool. That's the only thing I can remember. And so I'm holding him, and, and the, the guy's freaking out, and it's like, it's okay, look, I called 911. I told him he cut something off, we're not sure what. So, of course, Wellfleet's finest come. They come in. He's like, what's going on? And I'm like, well, the saw's going, and there's blood everywhere. My dog's licking the porch. And, and I, <laughs> this guy, so he comes over. He's like, cool, that's okay. So he, he comes over, and meanwhile, you know, it's blood-soaked. And I, 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 I pull the, the napkin off, the blood-soaked napkin, put it over here. Sure enough, there's two fingers gone. Oh. I was like, oh. Disgusting. So the guy goes, the, the, the whatever, the, the uh, you know, rescue guy goes, patches him up, takes him to the hospital. On the way out, he goes, so where are the fingers? And I'm like, fuck the fingers. Shit. So we, I look on the porch, and there's a blood splatter, and the dog, So the guy looks at me, and I look at the guy, and I, we both go, ugh. And he goes off, and I'm like, oh my god, my friggin' dog ate the fingers. <laughs> Shit. Oh, this is disgusting. So I look and turn this off, and meanwhile, I hose down the deck, and Deirdre comes home, da-da-da, with paint. And I'm like, honey, you wouldn't fucking believe what just happened. She's like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It was disgusting. And the floor's mopped. Anyway, so we look around for the fingers, and we figure that maybe they either went flying off or the dog ate them. So I go to school the next day, 
and I'm in class, and I never answer my phone. Well, that's not true now, but <laughs> back at the time, I usually didn't. It was a flip phone. And the phone rings about 8.30 in the morning. And I'm right in the middle of teaching. And I say, hold on for a second. And I grab the phone. Hey. Oh, yeah. Hey, honey. What? You found the fucking fingers? <laughs> I turn around. <laughs> really? All right. Well, well all right. Well, where, where are they? What? On the lawn? Only one finger? Oh, shit. Only one finger? All right, well, look, pick it up with a napkin and just put it in the garbage and just leave the garbage there and I'll deal with it. But don't, just don't tell anybody. <laughs> Hi, kids. They're all sitting in the room going, no kidding. I mean, I completely forgot where I was. It's like, are you shitting me? My God, I just like, I just ruined their day. So, of course, I said, well, it was nothing, nothing. So... All I can do all day is think about these, this finger or these fingers. It's just, ugh. So I, I, I get up and I drive home and I go up the hill, long hill, and I slow way down. And the garbage can is looming <laughs> there. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. Really, is anybody like fingers? Ugh. So I drive and I get in and I look and there's a bloody napkin at the bottom. I pick it up, and there's a finger. So I, I get a plastic, and I put it in the plastic, and I'm like, what, what do you do with this? Well, it was too late to sew back on. And I'm thinking, all right, so we're, I'm, I'm going to go throw it at the beach or something. Well, I'm thinking, no. If I do that, it's probably going to wash up and be like, like, where's the rest of this guy, you know? <laughs> like, that's not going to work, you know? That's just a bad idea, just a bad idea. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll bury it. Of course, that's what I'll do. I'll bury it. And I'm like, no, you know, I live, I live right in the middle of Conservation Central. Something's going to dig it up and leave it on the door. or You know, something's going to happen. It's just going to get dug up or something. And I just couldn't figure out what to do. And it's a finger. It's a finger, you know. And I never knew what happened to the other one. It's a finger. It's so personal, you know. It really is. It was, it was this finger. This one on the left hand. It's this and it, so... I put it in the freezer. I just didn't know what to do. So our son comes home. And he's, how old was Dakota at that point? Eighth or ninth grade, okay. He comes home and of course I start, hey Dakota, I've got some finger food for you in the fridge. He's like, really? He's like, what does that mean? I said, well, just look in the freezer. I'll tell you, it's really, it's, it's, it's in a plastic bag in the freezer. I, I saved it especially for you. He goes in and he gets another freezer. He's like, oh my God, you know? And anyway, so long story, to finish this story up, we really, I didn't really know what to do with this. And I felt so bad. I just felt so bad for this guy. I sent him flowers and I sent him some milagros of hands and limbs and feet, you know, the things that you nail on a little heart in Mexico. Even though he was Portuguese, Brazilian, whatever, it's close enough. And, um, and we actually, we actually, we have a fire pit and we actually did a little ceremony and we burned it because I felt that that was probably the best thing to do. But uh, I think I caused a lot of anxiety with my kids in class that day. Thank you. 
and our third storyteller to the stage is no stranger to La Mosquito, Mr. David Raven. I would have told Rosa Parks to move. <laughs> I, I would have. Um, high anxiety, you know. Anxiety is... Uh, it's, it's misused and abused. Uh, my daughter came home one day and said, you know, Katie doesn't have to take tests. She suffers from anxiety. Fuck her. <laughs> really. I mean, everyone has anxiety before tests. Uh, you want to talk about anxiety? How about going to prison? That's pretty heavy. And... Uh, I have a friend who was looking at about 24 months in a state penitentiary and he was scared to death. The anxiety was killing him. And uh, I said, listen, talk to somebody who's been through the process, maybe it'll help. And so we found somebody who'd been through the process and he sat down with him and he, he opened up to him, he said, listen, I, I'm scared to death. I just don't want to do this. And, and the guy who'd been through the process, he said, listen, I don't want to sugarcoat this, but you know what? I've been through it. It's not so bad. It's not. Let me ask you, uh, do you like movies? The guy said, yeah, I love movies. He goes, well, every Monday, directors and producers come from Hollywood and screen a film, and afterwards, there's about an hour and a half of question and answer, and if... You like movies, you're going to love Mondays. He goes, what about sports? Do you like sports? He goes, I love sports. He goes, how about basketball? He goes, yeah, love basketball. He said, you know, Tuesdays, in the off-season, coaches from the Lakers come, and they run clinics all day long. <laughs> if, you, if you like basketball, you're going to love Tuesdays. He goes, what about working out? You like to work out? He goes, yeah, I like to work out. He said, well... State-of-the-art equipment, and once a month, personal trainers come in, and they will actually show you how to work out properly. So if you like to work out, you're going to love Wednesdays. He said, let me just ask you, do you like anal sex? And the guy goes, no. You're not going to like Thursdays. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I, now that I, uh, I disgusted everybody, I'd like to tell a, a, a nice story. Uh, also about anxiety, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for human beings that have anxiety. In terms of anxiety, I'm a carrier. I, I, I produce anxiety in other people. And, uh, but, but I do have enormous sympathy for animals that suffer anxiety. And anyone who's owned a dog, Fourth of July, Thunder Lightning, it's, it's horrible. I mean, they, they can literally freak themselves out to death and... Uh, one day, I'm walking in the woods, and I hear a, a, a sound, and it gets louder and louder, and as I'm walking, I, I hear it saying, help me, help me, and I, I'm looking around, and I'm looking for people, there's nobody, I'm alone in the woods, and I, I keep walking, and I hear, help me, help me, and all of a sudden, you know, and I'm looking in the trees, maybe it's a bird, but I don't see anything, and all of a sudden, the voice is loud, help me hey, down here, and I look down there, and it's, this is true, it's a talking frog. 
And I said, what, what's the matter? And the frog said, I'm scared. Get me out of here. So, sure. I picked the frog up. I took him home. We talked through the night. The frog was fascinating. We got home, and, you know, it was about 2 in the morning. I said, listen, I'm, I'm dead. I, I'm, I'm going to bed. The frog said, can I go into bed with you? And I said, I don't know about that. And the frog said, please, I'm scared to be alone. So I said, oh, okay. So I put the frog in bed. I shut the lights off. And the frog said, could I just have a little kiss? Just one kiss. And I said, look, that's disgusting. The frog said, please, just one kiss. So I said, okay, fine. I give the frog a kiss. All of a sudden, the frog turns into this beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed, 15-year-old girl. And I swear, Your Honor, that's how it happened. And to the stage, may we have Kayla. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, um, a little background to me. I just graduated from Nauset. I lived in Lisa Brown's room, and um, I was there with my little sister and all my friends. And so one afternoon, I was about a sophomore, I had just passed my driver's license test, and apparently that didn't mean I had my driver's license because I never paid for it. Little did I know, so I was driving around without a driver's license, and this is the story of the first time I got pulled over. So one afternoon, my mom asked me to stay after school and drive my little sister home from field hawking, so I was like, all right, so maybe I'll run down to the beach. And I also have a lot of allergies that are little known by any doctor in Massachusetts or the US. So it's um, cold uticaria and cholinergic uticaria. So I'm allergic to both the cold and hot. And apparently nobody's seen that in the US before together. So I was driving down, um, down to Nosset and I was going to run back to pick my sister up. And so of course, I'm having an allergic reaction when I'm running. And so I'm covered in welts and hives. and I don't have any Benadryl with me at all because I left it all in my other car at home. And so I am there and I'm running out into the field and I'm begging Megan's field hockey coach to let her go early because I have to get home. And so we get in the car and realize neither of us has any Benadryl or any medications and neither of us has any money to buy any. And so we live in Dennis, so we're trying to drive home to Dennis as fast as we can. We get in this broken down like old Jeep Cherokee, our first car, like windows don't open, doors don't lock, it strictly just drives. Maybe. And so we're driving down Route 6. And so obviously, the first thing you're supposed to learn when you new driver going to Nauset, don't speed on Route 6 because East Ham cops will pull you over. That's like the number one rule. And so of course, I'm not thinking, and I'm like stepping on it down Route 6, covered in hives. And of course, trying to regulate my temperature with this cold and hot allergy, I'm just in spandex and a sports bra, half naked with my little sister in the car next to me. And so I'm driving down, and of course, I'm going probably like 55, almost 60 down in a 40. And so I get pulled over, and I get pulled over, and I'm freaking out before I even get to the side of the road. I'm pouring tears, and my sister is like rolling her eyes because <laughs> she's like, oh, I don't feel like dealing with this right now. And so I, <laughs> so I pulled over. And the cop's kind of taking his time, like getting out of the car because it doesn't seem like there's an emergency. It seems just some teenagers driving too fast. And so I get pulled over, and obviously the windows don't roll, roll down on this old Jeep Cherokee. 
And so me not thinking and me being in such a panic and me having such anxiety, I open the door and the cop pops out and he's like, shut the door, shut the door, screaming. And I'm like, oh my God, he's going to like arrest me right here and now. I cannot go anywhere. And so he is like, he like, I thought he was going to call for backup. I was freaking out. I was like, Megan, they told me not to do this in driver's ed. I messed up. And all of a sudden, he comes up to the door, and he's like knocking on the window. And I'm like, I can't roll the window down. I couldn't talk to him. And so finally, I get the door open. And I'm sitting there half naked. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. And like, there's hives all over my body. And it looks like I have some strange skin disease. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I'm having allergic reaction. He can barely hear me because I'm screaming. And I'm like bawling my eyes out. And so um, he ended up trying to, he was actually really, really sweet. And he was trying to help me out. And he was asking me. He's like, oh my gosh, you need an ambulance, do you need help, like all this stuff. And I'm like, I hate ambulances more than anything and I hate going to the hospital. So I was like, of course not, I have so much algebra homework to do, I can't go right now, I've got to get home. <laughs> and we sit there fighting back and forth for almost 15 minutes and he's like, I have to talk to your mother, I need to know that you can't go to the hospital. I was like, do you know how much science homework I have? I don't have time to spend my night in the hospital. And so all in all, he's, he agreed to let me go. He ended up calling all the police on the route back to Dennis, telling them that I was on my way. But all in all, it was okay. Our car didn't break down, which I was surprised of. Um, yep. <laughs> so it ended up okay. It was really stressful for both me and my little sister, knowing that I didn't have a license. He pulled us over, took my almost ripped in half expired permit, and was like, I got to tell you something. This isn't a real license. <laughs> If you weren't in covered in hives, I would probably have to like <laughs> have your mom come and pick you up and like get a tow truck for your car because I don't know how you're driving around on this. I swear to God, I did pass my driver's test. And so he ended up being really, really sweet and letting us go. But for all of us, there was nothing but anxiety. I called my mom. <laughs> she was caught up at work in Harwich. And so we were just so far away from everything. But it turned out OK after <laughs> a lot of stress. <laughs> And we have next Katie Roycroft. Roycroft. Right, Katie? Roycroft. Okay. This is uh, Katie's first time on our stage. She's been coming to check us out, so we're happy to see you here. Yeah. So, High Anxiety is in front of you all for the first time, I'm trying to do something on my bucket list. So, thank you. I also think anxiety is more what we do to ourselves than anything else. So my story starts in 1987 in June when I graduated from nursing school. I had a three-year-old daughter in tow. And when you graduate from nursing school, you are not automatically a nurse. You must take the state boards. And if you pass, you become a licensed registered nurse. So back in the 80s, the boards were scheduled for Massachusetts at the Bayside Expo Center in Boston on two consecutive days in July. And it was the test you write, fill in the dots with a number two pencil. So we took, we all, all my classmates and I, we had taken um, a class to get ready for the boards. And part of the class was relaxation techniques, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. What they had told us was, why don't you go up the day before, get a nice hotel, have a nice dinner, get a good night's sleep, take the test, and then do the same thing the next night and take the test. I'm a single mom. I didn't have money for dinners out, hotels, things like that. So I found two classmates, Karen and Trisha, and we decided we'd commute up each day. So the first day, we meet super early in the morning at exit six, where the Burger King is, because we don't want to take any chances. 
They would lock the doors at a certain time, and once the doors were locked, you couldn't get in. If you couldn't get in, that was a flunk. So we weren't taking any chances. So we got up there super early. We were let in. It was folding tables with folding chairs. We all had about 40 number two pencils in our pocketbooks because <laughs> you didn't want to take any chances. It was a long, hot day, filling in the dots. So we're on our way home, and we're all telling each other, well, there's no point in studying because you, know, you either know it or you don't, and that's one thing that they had told us. So we're all promising each other we're all going to go home and get a good night's sleep. So a friend of mine, Lisa, had come to stay at my house to watch my daughter so I could take this test. So I come home, dinner's ready, we have a nice dinner, I do the evening routine with my daughter. Now when I get nervous or anxious, I like to clean or cook or stuff like that. So once we were done, I cleaned the kitchen and then I thought I would do some laundry. Anything but studying. So the house that I had rented, the woman that had rented it to me was nice enough to leave me this ancient washer and dryer. The dryer was about 30 years old and the mechanism in the door had broken. So I had found this enormous cast iron radiator in the cellar and I had shimmied it over and if I propped it against the door just right, the door would stay closed and the clothes would dry. <laughs> now I had been doing this for months without any problems at all. So I go downstairs, I load up the dryer with clothes, I get the radiator up against the door, it falls over on my left foot. Oh. And of course I'm barefoot. So I'm not a screamer, but I am a yeller. So I was yelling. Lisa comes flying down the stairs. Well, neither one of us can pick it up because I'm at an odd angle. So we kind of shimmied off my foot, and I knew there was something wrong because I couldn't put any weight on it. So she's trying to help me up the stairs, and she called her boyfriend, who, uh, Danny, who's a fireman. So he comes over and takes me to the emergency room. So if anybody's been in the emergency room at Cape Cod Hospital in July, so... Danny had a friend, Barry, who was also a fireman, but he moonlighted as a tech. So Danny found Barry, told him about me, and said, you know, she's going to test in Boston. So can we, you know. So I was out in triage for a while before I got in, because, of course, it's a busy July night on Cape Cod. Once I get in, Barry introduces himself to me. He goes, I'll get the ER doctor to see you. So I got some pain medicine, so now I'm feeling a little bit better. And the doctor comes over, and he goes, you have some kind of test tomorrow. I said, well, it's the nursing board. I can't miss it. I'm going to flunk. And he goes, oh, no, I'll, I'll just write you a note, and you can take it, like, next week or the week after. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. If I'm not there tomorrow, I'm going to flunk, and the only reason I can't be there is if I'm dead. <laughs> so whatever we have to, I, I, I can't miss my ride, because now I can't drive. I, I, you know, so I'm, I'm just full of anxiety, and I'm thinking, if I don't pass this, I have student debt. I have a little girl. I, I've got to get my life going. So they take an x-ray, and, of course, it's broken. The doctor's like, well, I'd really like you to hang around for the orthopedist. I said, you don't understand. I'm meeting my friends at 6 o'clock in the morning. I have to go to Boston. And now it's like 4 o'clock in the morning. i got to get going. So they splint my foot. They give me an envelope full of Percocet, teach me how to use crutches, and send me on my way. So I, <laughs> I call my mom because I'm too stoned to drive. And I said, can you please bring me to meet my friends at exit 6? So when I get there and they see me trying to get out of the car and maneuver the crutches, which I've never used before, Trish is like, oh my God, what happened? Now Karen knows me a little bit better, so she's laughing. <laughs> so they get me in the back seat of the car and I give them a quick version of what happened and promptly fall asleep. So we get up to the Bayside Expo and the idea of walking in from the parking lot is daunting on crutches. So Karen runs off and lo and behold, she comes back with a wheelchair. She plops me in the wheelchair, and in her enthusiasm to get me in the door, misjudges the curb. So now I'm laying on the sidewalk, and of course, there's thousands and th <laughs> there's thousands of new nurses that want to help. 
So I get slammed into a wheelchair. Someone takes my crutches, and now I have five people wheeling me into the Bayside Expo. They find a spot for me to sit so not too many people will bump my leg. So the second day is kind of a blur because um, <laughs> I was tired, and for lunch I had Percocet. And uh, so I think in the afternoon, and if you don't answer a question, it counts against you. So I knew I had to answer all the questions. So at some point in the afternoon, I think I gave up and just started filling in the dots. So now the worst part comes because back then it took four to six weeks to get the results. So after two weeks, I was a little hopeful and started going to my folks' house every day checking the mail. So after a couple more weeks, my father had had enough. So he and my mom took the youngest kids and took off because they didn't want to be around when that envelope came. People were talking about, well, if it's a fat envelope, it means you flunked. If it's a thin envelope, it means you passed. So another week goes by, and I'm hearing about people getting their results. And some people pass, and then I was surprised about some people that didn't pass. So I go over one day, and my brother Sean had just come home from the service, so he's the only one home. He goes, hey, Kate, there's an envelope for you on the table. So I pick it up, and I'm looking at it. I'm like, does this look fat to you? <laughs> Do you think this is fat? And he's like, oh, for fuck's sake, Kate, open the envelope. <laughs> so I open it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at it. And of course, he's like backing away. And I'm like, oh my god, I passed. <laughs> So looking back, all that anxiety was really for nothing, but it actually it wasn't, because I was just a mess, so <laughs> thank you. So, oh, okay, so um, we're going to have a special guest storyteller come up right now who judges you can relax and just enjoy, no judging necessary for this one. Um, he is a friend of ours who has done many of our story slams and just killed it. And he's in Wellfleet all summer camping out and uh, has lots of adventurous things going on in his life. Anyway, he got really inspired by this story slam and started his own in Newton, Massachusetts uh, during the winter called the Nomadic Story Slam. So you guys can find that if you're up in the Boston area too. And um, yeah. So that's really cool. So uh, he's going to share a story with us tonight about high anxiety, Mr. Jerry Riley. So the phone rang one night, and it was our friend Zini. She's calling um, from New York, and she said, how would you like to go to India? And uh, it turned out Zini had swapped her apartment in New York, her little apartment in New York, for a huge sprawling apartment in New Delhi. So off we went, uh, me, my wife, and Zini uh, to India. Never been. This is just kind of a wild thing. It happened very fast. We get over there. Uh, we had uh, an amazing trip. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to India, go, go there. Um, and, you know, we saw all kinds of stuff and, uh, that I'd never seen. It was just it was wonderful. It was wild. The best vacation I ever had. Um, at the end of the, we were there for two weeks in, in the north, and then at the end of the two weeks, um, Zini's friend had said, if you go, you have to go to Varanasi. And now it's a couple hundred miles away, and so uh, we got in a plane, we flew to Varanasi, we got a cab in the airport to take us uh, into the city to a hotel, and we drive out of the airport onto, you know, your typical Indian road, which is insane mayhem and cars and cars buses and everything running around. And uh, as just as soon as we get out there, the cab driver switches into tour guide mode. And he says, Varanasi is a very ancient city. Wherever you live, 
you must bring, if you, when you die, you must bring the dead body to Varanasi. The Holy River Ganges, you must bring the body there. The dead body has to become, and it's, it's um, from all over India, people bring the dead body. Oh, dead body. And he points out the window, <laughs> and there's a car going past us. It's the middle of the afternoon, it's 85 degrees, the sun's beating down, and on top of this car, there's a package, like, wrapped up, and as soon as he says dead body, you go, my God, that's a dead body on the roof of a car. I'm, like, freaking out. So he just continues, you live 100 miles, you live 50 miles, wherever you live, when you die, you must bring the dead body to the river. Oh, dead body. And he points, there's another car going by on the other side with another big bundle. I'm, like, freaking out by this. So he takes us to our hotel. We, we, we get in the hotel, we check in, we go up to the room, and something happens to me that is like wildly out of character for me and for my family. Now, my wife has got an amazing imagination, and she, she can sort of spin off on all kinds of, you know, things. I'm an engineer, you know, I'm a little more kind of, you know, down to earth. But we get into this hotel room, and I smell something. It's not very strong, it's faint. But it's this very, very, it's some smell, it's not pleasant, and it's like something like real, like earthy, ugly, and it's kind of, and I smell it, and I get it in my head that this is, I'm smelling a corpse. <laughs> you know, that one of those bodies, you know, they checked it into the hotel. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, I start spinning out of control, and I'm like, I, my heart's pounding, I'm like, I can't stay here, I can't, and my wife and Zini are like, Hell, you know, and they're they're like uh, uh, trying to, you know, get me over. And I'm just no, I'm 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 got intense high anxiety, and I'm like insisting we cannot stay here. There's rotting human flesh coming through the ventilation system. I know there's a dead body somewhere in here, and I'm not going to go sleep and breathe dead bodies into it. So they're like, okay, all right. So um, we move to another hotel. So the next morning, um, we get up uh, before dawn. And Zini's friend said, you have to do this. And we go down to the river, and we find a guy with a boat and, uh, to take us out on the river, out on the river Ganges, as the, as the sun is going to come up. And so we get in the boat, and we go paddling out. And I'll never forget the scene. It's an, it's an amazing thing. At sunrise every day, the people of Varanasi pour down the guts, the things, into the river and bathe. And there's just, you know, all these people coming in and the sun's coming up across the Ganges. And we go paddling out there. And the boat guy switches to tour guide mode. He says, Varanasi is a very ancient city. <laughs> Wherever you live, you must bring, when you die, you bring the dead body <laughs> to the river. Uh, poor man, they burned the dead body in the factory, and he points, and up on the riverbank, there's this big, you know, sort of industrial-looking building, and you realize it's a crematorium. He says, a, a rich man, uh, no burn the body, uh, no, burn the body and a wood fire, and he points, and there's two fires on the riverbanks, and realize, oh my God, those are funeral pyres, and there's big wooden, you know, wood fires, and on the one closest to us, when we look at all of a sudden, you see that there's like an arm sticking out, and they're burning this body. Wow, this is amazing. Three people, no burned dead body. Uh, mother, mother uh, with, with the baby, you no burned a body. Uh, little, little baby, no burned dead body. Uh, holy man, no burned dead body. Take the body, uh, wrap it in uh, um, a cloth, cloth, 
put rocks and tie with rope, take the dead body out into the middle of the Ganges, throw it over, blah, 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 down. One day, two day, the fish, they eat the rope. Three day, four day, the body swell, rise to the top of the Ganges, float down the river. Holy river, no bacteria. <laughs> At this point, I'm like, this is the most insane place I've ever been. This is like crazy, nuts. But you know, um, a few years later, I found myself in Ireland, um, walking out the door of my mother-in-law's house in a city in Ireland, carrying her dead body um, on my shoulder. And we, we walked down the streets, and everybody came out of their houses to see the dead body as it walked by and bowed their head. And years after that, my, my brother and my mother and my father all died. And we took their dead bodies and we filled them full of chemicals to preserve them. And then we displayed them and all our friends and families came uh, to see the dead body one last time before we buried it in the ground. And I realized that day on the river, it was the first time I realized just how weird death is. And then no matter where you go in the world, we all have really strange ways of dealing with death when it comes. And the other thing I learned that day was an expression I still use now, a wonderfully blunt expression. And I always say it with just a little bit of an Indian accent, and that's dead buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Please have up to the mic, Grace. So my partner and I went to um, New Zealand a few years ago. And before we went, he said to me, by the way, I want a bungee jump. Do you want to go too? And I said, are you kidding me? I have two kids. I can't bungee jump. I don't want to die. I can't die yet. I'm too young to die. And he said, you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Anyways, <laughs> between the time that we uh, decided to go, it took a few months. And anytime we saw our friends, we're saying, oh, we're going to New Zealand. Oh, and uh, Jack would say, I'm going bungee jumping. Oh, you're going to? Me? I don't want to die. So anyways, we get to New Zealand, beautiful place, and we get to Queenstown. And that town is a very uh, strange, what it does to your reality. <laughs> it really does a number on what normal is. Uh, walking in the street and you see a guy just coming down from the sky and it's there. Um, he just, came down. <laughs> and um, you do weird things. In fact, before we left, I read uh, New York Times about New Zealand and uh, how crime is so low in New Zealand that they have to invent these crazy um, sports so they can actually scare themselves <laughs> because there's no crime. And once you get there, you do understand that. So anyways, um, we get to Queenstown, and before you go to bungee jumping, you have to go to this uh, little, uh, this place, 
uh, where you have to pay and you have to make the appointment for when you're going. And so we get there and my, husband, my partner uh, is a bit older than me. And so we get there and we said we need to make uh, the reservation for tomorrow to bungee jump. And he said, oh, congratulations, come over here. And I said, no, no, it's not me, it's him. And he said, oh, okay. So he gets there, are you sure you don't want to go bungee jumping? I said to these kids, no, I don't want to die, I have two kids. He said, okay. So anyways, the next day you have to take the bus. And um, it's about 45 minutes to get to Kalara Bridge. And you have to go about 45 minutes into where you go through a bridge and you see another bridge and they said, oh, that's the bridge where you're gonna jump. It's the first jump, the first bridge that was bungee jumping was invented. And so we get there, they prep them up, uh, they tie them up and uh, everybody is on this side of the, the bridge and everybody's cheering on, jump, jump. <laughs> and before him, there's this kid from, um, uh, I think it was South Korea, and he's getting there and he's going, oh no, oh no, 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 I can't go, I can't go. And finally, after a while, they said, okay, go get drunk and come back again. Because they don't <laughs> refund your money once you're there. And it's $180. And so, um, next thing you know, Jack comes out, and um, they ask him a few questions, and I hear through uh, the microphone, um, uh, Something with the doctor, oh no, I'm all set, yes, I asked my doctor, yes, I can jump, yes, I have a heart problem thing, but yes, I can jump. And they said, okay. So he gets to the edge of the bridge and uh, he's going, do I go now? He said, sure, he go, jump, that was it. And I thought, oh man, I'm New Zealand, I'll probably never come back here again. He just made it look so easy, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Now, I know that you can't do that because you have to go back 45 minutes away to make, to pay for it, to make the arrangements. But I decided, you know, I'm gonna do it. So Jack comes out, he jumped, and I said, Jack, I'm gonna do it. He said, you are? I said, well, you made it some, look so easy, just, just win. And he said, all right, well, let's go check it out. So we went into this little office and I said, can I jump today? And he said, he looks through a little window and he said, yeah, sure, we can, we can do it. And I said, well, wait a minute, um, are you sure? He said, yeah, there's nobody online over there. And I said, oh my God, uh, okay. He said, okay, step on the scale, because they don't, they don't take them. You know, they don't want to believe how much you weight. They don't want you to tell them. They want you to get on the scale. So I get on the scale, and he looks at my weight, and he said, okay, now go over there and pay for it. And I said, okay. And I said, um, so I'm going to jump. And he said, okay, here's, uh, give me your credit card. And I cannot open my wallet. <laughs> I can't take it out. Because once I, I know that once I signed that credit card bill, I have to do it. And I really was hoping for them to say that they couldn't do it. I mean, I was going to say, you know, I tried, but they said no. But I mean, at least I could, said, I could have said once I got home, well, you know, I tried jumping, but, it couldn't, but, it, but they were saying, just sign the credit card. 
And Jack's looking at me and he said, just use my credit card. And I'm thinking, oh my God, so much pressure. And I said, wait. And I'm thinking, what is on the, no more people coming for this thing. And so, okay, I take the, the pen and, and I'm still not sure if I should sign it because once I sign it, I know I have to do it. And, and he said, J -j just sign it. All right, so I sign it. And at that moment after I signed, that credit card slip, it was like somebody took a vacuum and put it in my mouth and just removed every moisture that I had in my <laughs> mouth. And I thought, I wonder if that's how people feel when they know that they are about to die. You know, like, <laughs> you know, sometimes you see people in movies and they have a gun over your head. And I thought, I'll bet all the moisture just gets removed. <laughs> I wonder if, and I forget that I'm actually about to jump. And I, that's the only thing I'm thinking. Anyways, they tell me to follow them, go over this walking path thing. And they start tying me up, and I still, I just need water. Can somebody give me a water? Where's a water bottle? I came still. So anyways, I get to, they tie me up, and I get to the front. And I'm looking down, and I say, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. And the guy's going, yes, you can. Three, two, one, and go. All right. Let's try it again. And I, and I said to him, can you just push me? And he said, well, we can't do that. And I... <laughs> And I kept going again, and I get close, and I said, I can't do this. And everybody's going, jump, jump, jump. And I'm thinking, it's a good thing to hear that. But, And then the guy said, OK, just look, and look at the bridge over there. And I did, and all of a sudden, everything went blank. I didn't hear the people. I didn't see anybody around me, and I just went. And I jumped. <laughs> I don't remember anything about the jump except for the video. <laughs> but I was high for two days after that. <laughs> and now we have Terrence. Terrence in the house. I remember falling in love and that was the worst moment of my life. Um, there were a bunch of other things that caused fear, like unremitting fear, indelible fear, being abducted in Honduras, um, having a gun put to my head in a cab. But I got over some of that. Some of it kind of stuck with me. But the anxiety of actually being in someone's presence who moved so beautifully and thought so beautifully and there was a perfect combination of those two things. It was like diving through Marianne Moore and Wallace Stevens at the same time and actually fucking understanding them. And, and, and I was there in her presence and I just thought, dear God, don't let her see me. And everything was going to work out because I didn't think she would actually see me. And there were a bunch of reasons for this. One, I didn't want any kind of relationship. Um, two, the place that I was at was kind of business-oriented. 
Um, it was to follow up on an earlier story. It was a little bit of a political sort of get together. Um, there are about 14 people working with Robert Reich and I was one of them and we had split up the state into different areas and I had been assigned to organize the southern district of Massachusetts running from Quincy to Provincetown. And um, then we had this big opening in Cambridge and invited all these people who are going to be from various parts of the state. And I remember seeing this woman and she was speaking and she was just so incredibly elo just eloquent and, and heartfelt. And I remember it was like I could see her electrons. You know, I was, and, and I'm looking around the room, I'm thinking like, why isn't everybody else seeing this? This is, this is just freaking incredible. Um, and maybe they were. But she got assigned to me, and she lived in East Ham, and so she walked over to me, and and I, somebody described it earlier with the, the vacuum. There, I, there was no moisture left in my body. I had no mobility, no motility. I had no intelligent thoughts. She probably thought like, oh, the rice campaign is ruined. This guy's a fucking idiot. I'm, <laughs> I'm standing there with a clipboard. I could have just been hitting myself in the face with it, like, <laughs> and so then, uh, you know, she she left my presence and everything kind of returned to normal. The colors sort of returned, and trees look like trees again, as opposed to these glowing, you know, um, what's that, what's that line, the Franco O'Hara line, like um, we're breathing back and forth in between one another, like trees, and uh, in the four o'clock New York sun, and. So poetry left, and there was just me, and I'm like, okay, well, I have to get down to business. We're organizing for the Reich campaign. We're gonna take this, it's gonna be progressive. Secretary of Labor, this is, fan this is fantastic. And then I've, you know, and, and so I looked at the district, and you know, Quincy's the big part of the district. It's got, it's got the most people, you should spend the most time there. And oddly enough, I, I, I wound up spending my time in a, in a town that had 2,000 people, um, East Ham, and, <laughs> and it was so bizarre. <laughs> And I would just randomly show up. She worked for the fire department, but I found myself there constantly. And she would, she would say like, you know, this is so great that the Reich campaign really cares. I'm like, yeah, Bob really cares about you. And, and I, I was, I was I, and there was no way, and so there were, there were a bunch of other sort of social issues that, you know, all fell away about, you know, however many years ago, that was 16 or 18 years ago. But at the time, it seemed so, so compelling, like she was married, I was married, um, she had kids, I had kids, and it was, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, <laughs> silly stuff. And so, just, just to, to back up a little bit on that, so, I was I, I was married, but I was married in this kind of b bizarre sort of the ant antithesis of anxiety wedding. Um, I was married in Alabama to one of my best friends um, because we happened to have a roommate who had a car and a thirty pack, and so I was doing death penalty work and she was doing ACLU work, and we thought this will be fun. Um, we're exercising our First Amendment rights, and um, so let's do that. And I found a washer on the way to the wedding that we used as her wedding ring. And when, when Judge Jimmy Stubbs said, I pronounce you man and wife, she whispered in my ear, this is not gonna interfere with your dating. And, I, and so, and what she meant by that was, this is not gonna interfere with my dating. And, and it didn't. <laughs> um, you know, there, 
Some people take marriage very, very seriously. At that time, I, I didn't. Now, I'm a little bit on the other side of that fence. Um, I hear that. And so, and so the, the problem here was that with love, with falling in love, it's, it's, it's at the beginning, to use a plumbing analogy, which everyone loves, is it's a one-way check valve because you, you fall in love and you're, you're going towards that person and there, there isn't a reciprocity yet. And eventually, someone mentioned conventions earlier, you gotta go. Um, the Democratic State Convention, there was just this, this beautiful moment where she suddenly realized that, you know, maybe I wasn't that bad of a guy. And that maybe since I was a whip for Robert Reich on the floor, that maybe some things could work out. And, and in fact, it, it did. But all of that, that potency and that magic and that poetry that was there in the beginning and that I was so, so, so just anxious about and so scared about because you're facing rejection and you've got all this baggage, it just fell away. And here we are 17, 18 years later. And um, I, she's just the most beautiful, poetic woman I've ever met. No anxiety. stage is Dan Lombardo. Dan Lombardo. Thank you. I got it. Thank you. Uh, has anybody out there ever nearly killed their best friend? Really? Has anybody nearly killed their best friend twice? No. See, I've, that's me. Uh, one of my best friends ever has been uh, Tom Golden. And I've known him since I was a little, little kid. And actually, I've, only, I've known him as Tom Golden. He was later known as Commissar, then Bert, then Palermo, then Bert Palermo, and then Ali Jumbo, and then Zabibo, and then Ali Jumbo Zabibo. That's kind of his multiple personality. But, and over this lifetime of knowing him through all those different names, he nearly died three times. And uh, the first time, we were in fifth grade, and I hit him in the head with a baseball bat. It was an accident, but I'll, I'll never forget the sound of, you know, as I said, the crack of the bat. And the, I'd never seen so much blood in my life, and it was awful. I, I, to this day, I feel awful about it. He has forgiven me, or at least I think he has forgiven me. Um, that was when he was known as Commissar. When we were in, in uh, high school, he was known as Bert. And um, an undiagnosed student, uh, schizophrenic student named Randy, came in one day with a knife from home and tried to kill Tom in the cafeteria. And that, again, was more blood than I ever wanted to see. And Tom almost didn't uh, survive uh, that time. Uh, Randy went on to be um, institutionalized, very sadly, and eventually he escaped and actually did kill somebody. However, to make the story a little bit funnier, we will move to, uh, <laughs> after college graduation, uh, Bert was known as Palermo because he fell in love with the island of Sicily, which is where my, my family is from. Uh, 25 years after that, 
I asked Tom to go with me back to my family's hometown. Um, people in Kanagatini Banyi, especially my cousins, liked Tom, or Palermo as he was known as then, uh, even more than me. He could eat copious amounts of pasta, anything you put in front of him, and I couldn't. So to this day, my relatives in Sicily will say, when are you bringing Tommy back? You know, uh, after, uh, so I, I invited him back uh, to go to Sicily with me, and uh, it was like uh, two middle-aged men thinking they were 16 years old again. We get to Sicily, and uh, it, it was just laughing all the time. He, uh, and, and, but instead of like saying, well, let's go do some wine tasting. How are the narrow Davila grapes doing this year? We said, no. We're 16 years old again. Let's go climb a volcano. So uh, Mount Etna was right there, but that's where all the tourists go. And when, what, when you think you're 16 years old, you don't want to do that. So we decided to go to Stromboli, or as you might call it, Stromboli. And that's a, a, a volcanic island that just comes straight out of the water, and it erupts uh, about every 20 minutes. It really just goes boom. Uh, Mount Etna about every 10 years. So we take a like a three-hour cruise out to Stromboli and uh, We get there and get get some brochures and the brochures say be sure to get a guide if you're gonna climb the volcano um, The neither we nor the volcano uh, read that brochure uh, Because there there weren't any guides around it was off-season uh, so I got a map and thought, oh, you know, we can, we'll leave San Vincenzo, we'll climb the volcano, and then the path will turn to the left, and we'll go down to Ginostro. So we uh, get to the uh, the beginning of the of the trail, and we're start we're starting to climb, and we notice that there are some signs that are no longer standing. These big white signs that are kind of flat, face down in the dirt, and instead of reading them. Because we think we're 16 years old, we think that they don't apply to us. So we just keep we keep hiking, and um, we start hearing you know the boom of the this volcano going off, and we get more and more excited. So we just keep climbing higher and higher. And we go we go past this little house with a plaque on it that was where Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman lived when they filmed the great film Stromboli. Uh, really pronounced Stromboli for people who are aware of the, <laughs> of the language. Uh, and we keep going, we keep climbing higher, we reach this uh, ridge, this razor-sharp razor ridge of, of cinders and rock that uh, we have to go over on this trail. Uh, and the wind is howling and the cinders are going in our eyes and we get to the other side of it and realize we better find this trail going down to Genostro because we can't go back that way. And we keep going, and we keep going until we find ourselves above the maw of the crater, looking down into the, into the crater, and we start smelling sulfur. And it scared the hell out of us. Uh, and then we're looking down into, the, in, into this crater, and suddenly, boom! And uh, rocks and flames are flying up and flying past us, and uh, what happened next, there, there are varying accounts for what, what happened next. Um, I recall that I heard a, a cry from Tom that was 
very similar to the cry I heard when I hit him in the head with a baseball bat. That high-pitched scream. And I, so I ran over, and I, I took him by the arm, and we took off, and we actually went over that ridge, back over that ridge, and, and climbed down the volcano. But if you ask Tom what happened, he will tell you that he looked over at me, and I was screaming like a little girl, and I ran for my life. Um, I don't remember that <laughs> at all. We, we got to, down to the bottom of the volcano, we, and we looked at those signs lying down. We said, maybe we ought to see what those signs said. So we turned one over, and it says, Pedicoloso, do not climb higher than this point. Uh, <laughs> so we go down the mountain, and uh, actually in October, now, coming up in just a few weeks, Tom and I are going back to Sicily together. Um, but this time, we're bringing Karen and Lori, two very, very sensible women who will tell us very kindly, you're no longer 16 years old. You're two middle-aged guys, and you're not climbing any damn active volcanoes. <laughs> Thank you. OK. Gabby Sunderland. Welcome to the stage. Gabby. That's perfect. Um, hi. Um, okay, so I grew up in New York City, and when I was four years old, I met my best friend, Tara, and she played violin, and I thought, wow, that's the coolest thing in the world. I want to play, too. So my mom and my dad were so cool, and they were like, all right, we'll, we'll get you violin lessons. And when I was five, they got me my first rental and started getting, getting me lessons with my friend's teacher, too, and I, it was so great. Now, fast forward, like, 12 years, I've switched instruments. Now I play viola which is also really fun. It's not that different. It's just a different clef and a different string, and it's still pretty cool. And <laughs> I'm auditioning for a music camp, actually my friend Tara's mom's music camp, and I'm terrible at auditions. <laughs> like, really, really bad. <laughs> to the point that I will have my music in front of me, and I'll still forget the entire piece, and it's awful. <laughs> um, so I go in for the audition, and I do the audition, and of course I mess up, and my friend's mom, who's known me since I was four years old, puts me in the lower kids' orchestra. I was 17 playing with 10-year-olds. <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> so <laughs> it's the music camp, and it's three weeks. It's a day camp. I go in, and the second day, I email the conductor for the orchestra part, and I say, listen, like I, I know I can play the, in the bigger kid orchestra. I know I can do it. I can play Shostakovich. I can even say his name. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she says, OK, fine, you can play. But just play two movements. I don't want you to like overload yourself. And I'm like, fine, I I'll play the two movements. And I do, and I start going to practice in the, with, the, um, with the older orchestra earlier, and I started going in later, and like eventually she just lets me play all five movements, and it's great, and I'm really excited. And then the second week of camp starts. And camp is fine, but then I realize that my parents are probably gonna get my report card soon, and my last like quarter of my uh, junior year didn't go very well, <laughs> did not get very good grades. So I was terrified. I was like, you know, like every junior, you're scared, you're like applying to colleges, you're like, thinking, oh my God, like I'm never gonna get in, and like, I also don't want to disappoint my parents, because they're great, and like I just, like I don't want to humiliate them, and I'm just like, oh no, they're gonna kill me. So I deal with the problem in the only logical way possible. I get drunk. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't even know what happened. Like, I guess, I, I don't, I really don't. <laughs> I, I drank a lot that night, too many shots of like orange juice for you, Seneca. <laughs> um, you said, or nine. So like, I'm, I'm drunk, I'm so drunk, and I guess I end up in the hospital somehow, one way or another. <laughs> 
and my parents are there and I wake up the next morning and they don't even lecture me. They don't give me any dirty looks. They're kind of just like, it could have gone worse. <laughs> it really could have. And they just send me back to music camp and I go into my classes late and I play Shostakovich hungover. It's, it's really hard to play that piece sober in the first place. It's super fast. It's like, bum, bada, dum, bada, dum, bada. it's like so quick. Like, I just, I don't know what's going on and I'm hungover. So I'm kind of like, I just want to cry. <laughs> I just really want to cry. And my friends are great. Like, I love my friends because they're, the music nerds are great. They just like want to help you with everything that you do wrong. <laughs> like, the, we went out to lunch and they're just like, do you want a milkshake? Does that help? I don't know. I've never been drunk. How do I help you? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, thank you. It was the best. They were, they were so great. And like, eventually my report card came and my parents were like, okay, we thought it, you were making such a big deal out of it. Like, this isn't nearly as terrible as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so that was a relief. And like eventually, like you know, the last week of the orchestra camp, or the chamber music technically, it comes around and we do our big like final concerts. Like every single day of the week, we're going to like outreach concerts. We play at a hospital. The hospital we played at was where I had my hangover night. <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> um, so that was really, that was really, I was like, I was so full of anxiety. I walked in that hospital and I'm just like, someone's gonna recognize me. Oh my God, I'm gonna die here just because I'm so embarrassed right now. And like, during, like just before I'm supposed to start playing, one of my strings pops. Like, wouldn't you know, one of my strings pops. And I don't have a spare because I'm like not prepared in that way. I'm never prepared. And so I'm like kind of going to everyone and I'm running around and I'm like, Brianna, do you have a spare string? Wait, um, do, who has a spare string? And I'm completely spazzing out because that's who I am. And eventually I have to go to the section leader of my viola section for the Shasti. And I ask him and he's like, okay, you need to chill. And he's like this really tall guy, super handsome, like huge man bun, blonde. And everyone's like just a little bit in love with him and hoping that maybe I'm in love with him too. And I'm like, no. No, no. And even my mom wanted me to be with him. It was kind of adorable. <laughs> and so I go to him and he's like, okay, chill. I, I, I'll take care of your viola. I have an extra string. Just breathe. Go go find water. Like, calm, calm yourself. You're like, just shh. And so I do. And he fixes my string and he gives me the, he gives me his string and it works out and I play and we sound great. And like the last day of the the camp, we have our final concert and I sound great with the Shostakovich and I get to play it and I don't mess up and I'm playing all five movements. And fast forward a little bit more, um, <laughs> I start school again and I'm, I keep going to this music school and it's great. But I'm still anxious because like school, this dreaded thing, the reason why I was so scared in the first place was because of grades. So my mom is brilliant because she's like, you know what, you're unhappy, like let's change schools, Let, let's transfer you to somewhere you like more. And my dad is great because he asks all, all the right questions about the new school that I'm transferring to. And it was great because they didn't have homework and they didn't do tests, so that's like every kid's dream. <laughs> like That's everything you want in your life. And I end up graduating a semester early, which is, oh my God, that's like such an other goal. Like, cool, I get to finish high school another semester early, that's great. <laughs> okay, and so like basically I'm gonna end this with like, the, my year completely changed because like I didn't, I didn't expect to get into college at all, but I ended up getting into an agricultural school for animal sciences with a focus on equine studies because I wrote an essay on music and the best people I know in my life. Well, speaking of dogs, we have Barky. <laughs> really? Barky? Barky? No. Barry. It's Barry. It's Barry. Barry. Barry in the house. Well, that's high anxiety to start with. <laughs> Barky. 
Thank you. Hi, Barney. Barry, Barry. Okay. Good evening. So, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And within a year, I was leading missions to establish their financial system, their banking system, introduce their currencies. This is a story about my first trip to a Central Asian Republic of Turkmenistan, <laughs> leading a team of international experts. And in those days, you know, Western Airlines didn't fly to the former Soviet republics. We had to fly by private jet. And so we picked up the jets initially in Geneva, Switzerland. And my team of experts would arrive. And it's a really international team. We had Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, Americans, Brits, Germans, Dutch. A really international team. And we'd all come to Geneva and we'd board the private jet to take us into Turkmenistan. And we get on the jet and it's pretty comfortable. We're pretty tightly packed in. And I get a message from headquarters saying I'm going to have to pick up another expert in Tbilisi, Georgia, because he's got to fly on to Uzbekistan. Okay, I said, okay, that looks okay. We'll be able to take him. So we take off. We get to Tbilisi. But there's not one person. There's two staff members waiting to go to Uzbekistan. And we don't have room on the airplane. No room. Tbilisi is not a friendly place at this time. of. They have civil war. It's not the place you leave your colleagues. So I said to the pilot, can we get them on? Is it safe? Can we take off safely? He goes away. He does the math. He does the weighing. He comes back. And he says, we can do it. We can get them on the plane and we can safely take off. And so we all get in, we all crunch up. We put the luggage in the toilet because there's no room in the hold. The hostess stands up because there's no room to sit down. We safely get, take off and we land in Askabad, Turkmenistan. And of course, the first thing I do there is look for a telex machine. Remember telexes? used to type them in triplicate and sign them in the base to, to send to headquarters and say, my equivalent of I need a bigger boat. I need a bigger plane. They cannot possibly go back safely to Geneva with this airplane that you've sent me on. You've got to send me a bigger plane. Okay, so we spend our time in Ashgabat, the city of love, as it's known, called doing our work, it's, former, it's, it's in state of economic collapse, little food, we stay in the Ashgabat Hotel, old Soviet-style hotel, you get one blanket, it's cold, it's December, to get a second blanket, you have to go to the concierge at the end of the hall and beg for a second blanket, on the condition you bring it back in the morning. Little food... We do our work, we work very hard, and of course, we always get entertained on these trips. Lots of drinking of vodka or Moldovan brandy, if you're lucky, 
and uh, toasting, great toasting in the former Soviet Union. So working, drinking, entertaining, your body starts to collapse. And my colleagues are all starting to say to me, what about the plane? Are we going to be able to get back safely to Geneva? Because after, by the end of two weeks, you really are in a state of physical and mental collapse because you've been working so hard, little sleep, writing reports at night, talking to the officials, and they're getting very anxious. They just want to get out of there. And they're worried about the plane. Are we going to be able to leave Ascobed to get back to Geneva, back to Western civilization as they know it? And this is an international team. So we go to the airport, and I'm really anxious for this group of people because they've really worked hard. And to my great relief, there is a larger aeroplane on the runway. But it's not just a larger aeroplane. It's a freaking DC-9, which is a large passenger jet. And it's a large jet, and at one end, it's got a dance floor <laughs> and a bar. So from the ridiculous of us all thinking we're not safely going to fly, to we come back to this descent, so we get back safely. And you know, I flew these private jets into the former Soviet republics for a number of years till the Western Airlines uh, came in. And the, the, the captain used to call me the night before and he would say, what would you like me to put on the plane for the flights down? Would you like champagne? What sort of champagne? Would you like caviar? What sort of sticks would you like? And I'd get the teams together and I'd say, guys, the captain's asking, what would we like on these airplanes when we fly down? And their reply always was, toilet roll, soap, because we knew when we got to the other end, this would be like gold dust to us. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm sure you know who you are, but nobody else does. Michelle, welcome to the stage. Um, okay, so I experience myself as somebody who has much more of an issue with depression than anxiety. However, I've had a lifelong fear of birds. And um, it's something that my close friends know about me. Anybody that's been to the beach with me or a city with me knows about me. However, as a therapist, it's not something that my clients knew about me. And um, so my office is in, was in Boston, and I had a lovely alley view um, between my building and the Berklee School of Music, and I could see lovely students performing and practicing. However, right across from my office was a vacant air conditioner, and in that air conditioner lived a pigeon family. And I had names for all of them. I hated them. I thought they did yoga in the morning. I saw them have sex every day. Like, it tormented me, and it's the view from my office, and all of my friends thought it was hilarious. All my therapist friends thought that my phobia was hilarious. So <laughs> to deal with it, I sat with my back to the window so that my clients could have that gorgeous city view. And so my specialty was um, addiction and particularly crystal meth addiction. So my anxiety about being high was my clients being high and the fear that they would all die because my belief about addiction is progressive deadly disease. So every day I'm about to see these men 
young gay men that I really want to help save, which was part of the problem, which is part of why I don't do that job anymore. Um, so one comes in who's not yet sober. And so most of my clients love me. I'm their touchstone, a positive part of their week. I'm younger than most of them at the time, but also like their mom, their mom that doesn't hate them for being gay. And so this one client isn't there with me yet because he's not yet sober. And so he sees me as his like probation officer. Nobody's court mandated to see me. If you're walking through my office, it's because it's your choice. However, this guy had this thing with me and it was up that day. And um, not thinking anything about my city office. He's talking and he's like checking in with me and letting me know that he, you know, ended up in New Hampshire on a bus and he didn't know where his shoes were and he didn't make it to work the next day and looking at for my face for a reflection of concern or anything. So all of a sudden, my back is to my window. He's facing me. My desk is kind of to my back. And behind me, I hear. So I'm under my desk. So it happened so quickly, and I went so immediately. I learned stop, drop, and roll when I was a kid, and I haven't gone back. So I'm under this desk with a client who's not my, you know, I'm not, he's, he doesn't worship me like the rest of them do. I don't know what to say. So he's sitting there. I'm not moving. I'm frozen underneath my desk in a medical building, mind you. So, um, you know, he's waiting a minute and he's looking at me. And I'm just like, I'm not even aware that he's there. I'm just, he's, Michelle, <laughs> Michelle do you need me to go get somebody? And um, so he said, no, but is it still there? Like, did it die? Is it like plastered to my window? And he said, no. And I'm like, okay. Um, do you think you could put my blinds down? And so <laughs> he pulls the blinds down and I kind of climb up out of my chair. I'm kind of like adjusting myself, fixing my hair. And I sit back in my like, very therapist-y position and probably holding on to my coffee. I'm like, okay, so you were saying about your mom? <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us live at facebook.com forward slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.